After 32 years, I came out of the closet as a gay Christian pastor. Finally, on the outside of that suffocating prison, I'm looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. It's not enough to become informed. We have to do something about the harm we're still witnessing within systems and spaces we've been loyal to for so long. It's time we become reformers. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to introduce you to this next guest. Um, we are obviously stepping into what well, we've talked about deconstruction. We're talking more about the queer community, talking about the race within all of that. I'm mm-hmm. excited to introduce you guys to Tamise Spencer Helms today. Um, we're I'm very excited to introduce her to you. I'm hoping to spend most of our conversation today just her getting to share her story, but also getting into the work that she does. Um, Tamise, do you want to introduce yourself, say hello, and just let people know who you are in the world? Yeah, so I'm Tamise Spencer Helms. I live um, in Richmond, Virginia. It's on Powhatan land. Uh, I've been doing ministry since I was about 17 years old. So um, like over 20 years, I started a business in 2018 called Subculture Incorporated, and we like serve black college students. Um, And so I'm a writer, I'm a theologian, but I'm mostly a mom and a wife. (laughs) (laughs) So that's who I am. Nice. And now while you mentioned you being a writer, you just had a book come out, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Unleavened. Sorry, Uh, I spoke when you said, can you say it again? Yeah, sure. It's called Faith Unleavened, uh, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. That's the name. Whoa, nice. Okay, cool. And then what is your like formal background and training? Yeah, so I got a master's from Fuller um, in theology, and I focused a lot on Black theology and the Black church there. And then at Wheaton, I got a master's in leadership and evangelism. And a lot of my focus there was on hip hop theology and things like that. Uh, so I've got two master's degrees. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. For people who maybe don't know what that means, can you just briefly define what hip hop theology is? Yeah. So, I, it, you know, in my opinion, I haven't gone into the PhD stuff yet, but in my opinion, I think hip hop is inherently theological. And I think that they're the best model for us of something coming out of nothing and the ability to hold tension. Uh, and so I think we can learn a lot from hip hop culture and hip hop music in terms of how it informs the way we do our faith. Yeah. Wow. Love yeah. it. Okay. Very cool. Well, yeah. to me, thank you so much for being here, for being on the show. Um, very excited to get to hear. Obviously, I've heard your story, but I want to hear it in a more, you know, the more detailed, specific yeah. version of it. Um, tell us, where did you come from? How did you get here? Share whatever you feel is pertinent and you want to put yeah. in there. Um, yeah, please tell us your yeah. story. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I tell my story in a lot in the book. So if I could, I'll just frame it like that way. Um, But I grew up in a black church and a black family. So most black families, at least those that were born around the time that I was born, um, went to church. And so I was church as a normal part of a normal black family. And then when I was 17, um, met white Jesus in a play about hell. um, And I became an evangelical at that point. Um, And so my life in Christianity has mostly been formed by evangelical theology, uh, literature, movements, church experiences. Um, And so I just, when the time of Trayvon Martin happened, uh, it was a real wake up call for me that there was white supremacy inherent in the theology that I received. And that's why I couldn't handle or stomach um, the brutality that was taking place. Um, And so I had a real crisis of faith uh, in 2012. I kind of come out of it around 2015 or at least begin to understand what actually happened to me. And so the book is kind of telling that whole story of like 
how I got there, what happened while I was there, how I got out and who I am now. <laughs> In a nutshell, it's kind of framed between Trayvon in 2012 and George Floyd, I was completely different um, by the time George Floyd died. So it was kind of like a very interesting way to bookend the experience as sort of a wilderness period. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So um, can we talk about from, sure. from Trayvon to George, like what was going on in your process, your perspective? I would love to hear just, you know, yes. what came up, what stood out, what you were noticing. Yeah. yeah all of it, please. Whatever you want, yeah. you want to share. Totally. So um, Trayvon, you know, Trayvon Martin was killed in February of 2012. Um, at that time, I was at a, at a large charismatic ministry in the Midwest. Um, and we had just obviously been dealing with the election of Obama. And so there was a lot of rhetoric and things like that, um, that at the time I didn't recognize as having anything wrong with them per se or being problematic at all. Uh, but then when Trayvon died, the fact that nobody in the community I was in understood why it was ripping me apart, understood why there was injustice involved, um, and none of the pastors talked about it, talked about whether or not we needed to pray or lament or mourn it. Um, and so it kind of hits me um, that I've been in something and I've been imbibing something poisonous to me as a queer Black woman. Um and so that part kind of waking me up and then having the very president who they had kind of caricatured as an antichrist to me getting on TV and saying that Trayvon could have been his son. Um, it was the first time that this person in leadership, it was the first time anybody in leadership in my life at that time even acknowledged the death of Trayvon Martin. Um, and so it was so, so much of a, it was bizarre in my head that uh, Black progress or this, this moment in Black history that was revolutionary for me as a black person was kind of being caricatured as the end of the world <laughs> for white evangelicals. So black progress is, is like losing progress uh, for white folks and that in the church that I was wow. in. And that to me was like, okay, so what does that say about me? And what does that say about discipleship? And what kind of image am I supposed to be being conformed to? So those are the questions that started to come up for me. Um, and I start to go on this journey of sort of answering them around the time of 2015. So that was like right after Mike Brown um, and that summer in Ferguson and then right up into the, you know, uh, Trump announces his run for presidency. So it's, it just happened that all of this stuff sort of happened in these very big moments. So there's a lot of stuff about, you know, January 6th, there's stuff about COVID-19. Um, all of that is in this sort of story that I tell. And it, you know, it just so happened that it fell in place like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So I would love to, if you're, whatever you can share within the context of the Trayvon Martin yeah. aspect of your journey. Excuse me. Um, what were some of the things that you noticed or that you like put together when you were like, oh, this, there's, there's a white Jesus that I've yes. never seen, not just a, right, an objective universal Jesus that, you know, I found in this community, but there's actually a whiteness to him. Like, can you tell right. us some of the things that were sticking out to you when you realized? Yeah, that? for sure. So what ended up happening was, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was very, very healing for me. Um, and so again, you have this rhetoric happening in the church space that you're in, that these people are terrorists. When you're literally watching like Alex Field Jr. like drive into the middle of a group of people, but people standing up with signs saying Black Lives Matter, those are the terrorists, right? And so it was started to be really, um, it started to um, make me a little bit angry 
Um, and in that process, I did a lot of studying about the origins of the faith. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously I've done seminary, so I knew a lot about church history, but there were parts of church history that never clicked for me. Like the fact that like the whole Western, like Western part of the empire at that time is responsible for what gets exported over here to America. And it's responsible for what anyone that's here is exposed to. Right. And so to me, whiteness or this idea that white supremacy is normal, um, that it's, it's just a fact that white is better, smarter, purer, um, more thoughtful, have more ability. They can think more clearly. They're more objective in situations like this idea that white is best and right. Um, that's embedded in our theology. And that's how we end up with a white Jesus. It's not an ethnic reality. It's more of an ontological reality, right? The essence of Jesus in America is, is in it's, it's infiltrated with this white supremacy and it showed up in the ways that we dealt with anti-Black violence. It shows up in the ways we deal with the queer community, shows up in the ways we do a lot of different things. Um, and that started to make sense. It's almost like leaven. And that's where the title of the book came from because leaven is this invisible agent that gives rise, that animates everything else, right? We don't see the leaven, but we know it's there because the bread is here and it's risen, right? And so we see January 6th and we see people with signs that say Jesus next to a noose. And somehow they think that's revival. Like somehow there's a way that a white supremacist group and a group of Christians can be on the same lawn. What do they have in common? It's white Jesus. <laughs> that's what they have in common. Um, otherwise, I don't know how an evangelical and a white nationalist are in the same room and excited about the same things. Like that, I don't know how else you get that. Uh, and, and so that's what I mean when I start to talk about whiteness is that we haven't realized that that whiteness that built this country is embedded in the way we think about Jesus. It's embedded in the way we worship. It's embedded in the way we read the Bible. Um, and I feel like, you know, having being black in this country and having ancestors that said you're reading the Bible wrong and having a country that goes, that was such a good thing they did. It gave me this sort of confidence and like, um, boldness to be like, this is trash and I won't do it anymore. And I won't worship white Jesus and white Jesus can kick rocks. <laughs> basically. <laughs> so that's where we're at in life. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> yeah great. Let's, okay. I've got yeah. a couple questions and all that. So sure. yeah. What for people who are listening, who maybe this maybe is new for them or that, you know, not really yes. like looked into this. Mm -hmm. Can you give any sp specific examples of ways you're noticing or ways that you like are pointing out, Hey, white supremacy is in like for example when you said the way we worship we do you have can you provide yes. any like specifics for people to grab onto be like oh that's what you're talking about that's because yes. if they can't see it you know it's just going to go over yeah would you care to untangle i mean the first i mean yeah i could like in terms of worship i think the first example um that comes to mind is right around the time of george floyd there was a worship leader who was going around doing like revivals at all these sites where uh, people were lamenting and mourning and wailing and protesting brut police brutality. And he goes and he's like, people are meeting Jesus and we're worshiping on this place. And they're doing all these videos. And I'm kind of like, how are you not able to see that people pounding this pavement and saying this is wrong and unjust? How is that not worship, right? And so the fact that there is this only one way that we look at what worship can be, when, when in our tradition, worship showed up in the Psalms and it was integrated with the pain and the suffering and the oppression that they were experiencing. That's how we get worship in the first place, right? Um, and so when you have whiteness 
um, that's embedded in your worship, it really isn't rooted in anything. Um, and so it can't comfort, right? Like, where do you go? I remember thinking, um, you know, when I was breaking up with white Jesus and I was like, I'm so glad I know about black gospel music. I'm so glad for like common hymnal out here, right? Like, because there were people, you know, I couldn't sing Hillsong worship songs because right. I was just, the whiteness was in my face, right? Um, and so it's like, I feel like there was an element of like, where do you go when that's all the worship you have? And there was one worship leader that I could stick with and that was Laura Hackett. The rest of them, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. <laughs> um, and so that's how worship showed up for me. The fact that he goes to this place and is like, we're doing revival here. People are coming to Jesus. No, people have been talking to Jesus and people have been worshiping. And the way that they worship is by standing up and saying, our lives matter and you need to reform the system. That's worship too, right? Like that we get that from Micah, we get that from Amos. That too is worship. Um, and so that's how worship, like whiteness showed up for me in worship. But like, in all the other ways, it's the binaries, right? Like you could really see it in the way that, um, you know, whiteness was this. So when I talk about whiteness, it's it's a ideology that normalizes white supremacy, right? That white is best. And so when it shows up in the way we think about even spirituality, that binary, because it was set up to categorize people. And so like what whiteness does is it goes, Here's the top of the spectrum and here's the bottom of the spectrum and everyone else is in between. Well, at the top is white, at the bottom is black, right? So whiteness exists to say, we are not that. So it's predicated on anti-blackness. And then all the races in between that they created, basically the, the lighter you get, the more access you have. Um, and so when you see these binaries about us and them, who saved, who isn't? Well, these are like hierarchies and categories and they remind me of whiteness, not Jesus, right? Um, and that that's where I feel like it kind of infiltrated the way I think. Wow, totally. Oh my gosh, totally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, okay, so. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll be on like, I'll be on the tip and I've talked to you before, so you know, we like, we vibe, so. Yeah, no, I love it. This is so good and helpful. I'm just, I'm thinking about the people who are listening and some of them, you know, I don't know, I'm assuming this is true for you, but I've noticed if I talk about, the queer stuff or we talk about race or privilege or whatever the people who are privileged and benefiting from these systems of oppression tend to get defensive they don't hear you they miss like they misinterpret things you're saying they twist your words there's an immediate like oh, yeah. change in how they hear you right you're no longer mm -hmm. being heard you're being interpreted mm -hmm. in a certain way right you're being <laughs> wow managed, that's a great way to say it. right mm -hmm. like i just noticed it's a dynamic that i've run into i'm assuming that's got to be true for you too so i'm thinking about the yeah. people who are listening right now who potentially yeah. are in that position because you're confronting and bringing critical a critical eye to jesus yeah. and claiming hey actually this precious deity you worship and is the purest form of anything you've known in your life actually right. that version right. you got has racism embedded in it. I'm imagining some of these people are like, this woman's yes. crazy. I can't, I can't believe, you know, like all the defenses going off. Would you care to speak yeah. to that dynamic? Yeah, I, I do. I think, you know, here's the thing about whiteness is that it robs white people too. That's what they, I, I think that the initial dissonance that comes is because if whiteness is actually this myth, then what does that say about everything else? right, that I've believed, that I've given myself to, that I've spent my money on, that I've spent my time on, that I've given my years to, I've named my kids after. Like, <laughs> it, there's so much wrapped in 
like all of this, that it's so much easier to say no, to make a blanket statement than to let it bother us. And I think my challenge would be that that's not our tradition. Number one, it's not democracy. We're supposed to critique, right? That's what it means to live in a democracy. We the people, right? But then in our faith, in our faith tradition, we have a tradition that is about conversation with text, right? It was mainly oral and there were different ways of looking at text. And what you needed was different people in the community to speak into that text so it could be whole, so it can make the most sense. Um, and so I don't think that you have to be afraid that you're necessarily doing anything wrong by allowing for the possibility that I'm not lying about whiteness, right? I, I don't think you have to be worried about that. What I do think you have to be worried about is whether or not you're willing uh, to pay the cost of agreeing with me. Um, and I think that's mostly where the pushback comes. It's like, it will cost you. Right. Um, it will cost you to divest mm. from whiteness because it built this country. So there's a lot of goodies attached to it, right? Um, but then I say to those who are Christians, like, hey, like we already know what Jesus says about empires. We already know what he says about bowing to the law of the land as opposed to the kingdom of God. And I think we know America's history. That's why they're trying to keep it out of the books because it, stuff is getting exposed right now about like, you know, America was founded, America has a birth defect and the birth defect is white supremacy. And here's the thing that we can be born again. Y'all believe that already. <laughs> Y'all like, already believe that. So that's why I don't understand where all the pushback is coming from. To me, it feels exciting. feels like, like, come on, let's, let's do... I mean, the documents that were written in this country, they're profound and they have great ideas embedded in them. The problem was they didn't have a perspective that there was anyone else that could bring anything else to the table. Right. But now we know that's a lie. So let's try it again. Like, let's actually do America right. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, America, like y'all keep talking about making it great again, but no one else, nobody can say that except white people. It's never been great for anybody but them. So why we keep talking about that? Like, like, like let's actually build a, dem a democratic society. Like, like let's actually do that. Um, I, I don't understand what all the pushback is about. I think it's fear and, and you know, fear is powerful. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> but it's not, it's not as powerful as love. Uh, it's, it's less costly though. <laughs> to totally. Give it to oh, to me, thank in you. In some ways. Yeah, yeah, so good. I'm just... I feel like I'm at church and just getting saved right now. It's so good. It's so true. Um, okay, so I think in the same vein, in a new direction, I want to yeah. ask you, you, the title of your book is, sorry, Leaven. Faith Unleavened, yeah. Say yeah. Uh, Faith Unleavened. Faith Unleavened, right. Uh, okay, yeah. so you yeah. you mentioned when we talked before, um, Leaven, like you talked about Leaven originating in Egypt, right? And like... Yeah bread and the inauguration of a people who followed Yahweh. Yes, you yeah. speak to that? Can you tell us about that part of Levin? Yeah. yeah, super deep because I, I didn't expect that. Um, but I'm, I'm writing this book. And, and so in 2015, um, at that time, I, I was basically drunk all the time. It, the extent of my Christianity was to just get drunk and take communion. Um, that's what faithfulness was for me at the time. Um, when you say drunk, are you talking about alcohol? Oh, yeah. 
Okay, sorry. Oh, you yeah. mentioned charismatic, whatever, right? I come from Bethel, and when you say someone's drunk in that context, it's a very different, but I just wanted to quite Okay, so you're drunk oh, yeah, on alcohol you. and taking communion. Yes. Okay. I would take like two or three shots of Patron, and there was a church up the road, and I would walk there, and I would just basically say whatever I was thinking, and at times it was like, I hate this, I don't want to be a part of this, I don't even know why I still love you, <laughs> like... Um, I hate that I love you even sometimes because I don't know how to relate right now. Um, but I would still take communion. Right. Uh, and so the idea of the leaven came from, uh, I was walking back from, from one of those, I called them tequila sunrise services. Right. So I'm walking back from, from one of those and God says, or Jesus says to me, Hey, remember I'm bread. I'm the bread. And, um, it connects with me, obviously, because I've just taken communion. Um, and so, okay, you're the bread. What does that mean? And we go on this journey. And then I start thinking about Jesus talking about being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees um, and the leaven of the Sadducees. I'm like, okay, because I fell in love with the Jesus in the scriptures, like Joshua, the Nazarene, like, yeah, I'm in love with that person, right? Um, and I loved what I read in the scriptures, but there are these warnings that he's giving and he's using yeast. He's using leaven. Right. And then I think about the feast that happens before he dies. And I think about the meal that happens after he rises and both of them have unleavened bread at the table. So I'm like, okay. And we know where the feast of unleavened bread comes from. It comes from the Exodus. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my story. Like, because the thing is, I learned in that process that Egypt is responsible for leaven. <laughs> like, so the fact that God says leave Egypt and also leave the leaven, like that to me says that there's some sort of correlation in the mind of the divine between this empire and what they put in the bread, which is why when God is inaugurating a new people um, that belong to God, there's no leaven of empire in what we eat. Right. And they do it every year. They commemorate this feast to kind of remind them of what kind of people they're supposed to be unleavened. We don't do empire. That's our God is not a king that is a tyrant. Our God serves us in the wilderness. Right. Like our God comes near. Our God keeps us warm in the desert at night and keeps us shaded in the desert during the day. Our God makes bread come from the sky. Our God can make water come out of rocks. So we have what we need. We just have to depend, right? He's not enslaving us. God is not a slave master. That's not how this works. But there is this sort of weird, um, there's a weird vulnerability about freedom. And I, so I talk about that too, because I think the unleavened bread is yes, like we're leaving the empire, but we also have this process we have to walk through, which is this wilderness where we have to trust that God could make it come out of the sky if I need to. Um, and they, you see them wrestle with that, right? Like they want to go back because <laughs> it's easier. It's not better. It's just more familiar. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm walking that out and I'm continually walking that out. And I, I rather use that phrase than like something like deconstruction or something like that, because it's a pilgrimage um, and it's a constant thing that needs to constantly be checked. Um, it doesn't just happen once and for all. Um, so that's kind of where that motif came from. I love that. So good. Yeah. Okay. So when you use the term empire, again, I'm thinking of people who are watching, listening, and I want to try and represent things that might be barriers for them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. When you, when you talk about people leaving Egypt and, you know, the unleavened 
the whole thing and them not participating, not partaking in empire. What are some of those things you would speak to as it pertain to now? Can you give language okay. or specificity to what does empire look like, especially as it pertains mm-hmm. to Christians today? Mm-hmm. I think like, you know, what's interesting is I'm thinking about, I don't know why this popped in my head. I'm thinking about Sodom uh, because you see this. Yeah. I don't know why it popped in my head, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so we're going to see what happens, but I, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, they, they have these visitors and these people, like the, the gist of that story is about inhospitality. Right. And God is inaugurating a people that is not like the empire. We don't exploit. Um, we, we, we welcome strangers we are hospitable to strangers. We don't exploit them. We don't um, we don't take our power and use it for their harm, right? And so that story is about is as much about that as anything else. Uh, and to me, I think that's the difference between empire. Empire is transactional. It's it's crabs in a barrel. It creates that. It turns you against you and against your neighbor because it knows that you fighting with one another is actually ultimately better for the empire, right? Like there's no love in empire. It's only transaction. Um, and I think that that's the the main thing. If you pay attention to, I mean, I, like I said, like I'm saying this as an ex-evangelical, right? You you don't even need to look much further than that. You start saying stuff that doesn't agree. And watch what happens to your relationship, <laughs> to your job, to your title, to your book publishing deal, right? To the amount of followers you have. That stuff is real, yeah. right? When when Nebuchadnezzar tells those boys, if you don't bow, we're going to throw you in this fire. He wasn't playing. It was not a game. But the problem is, and they get thrown in the fire. That's the thing. But they don't burn and they're not tied up. And like, that to me is the picture. I've been spending a lot of time in Daniel thinking about how do we live in America where we just don't bow to statues. We don't bow to whiteness. And so you may get thrown in fire, but it won't burn you. You won't be tied up. Like that's how we do this, right? Like we don't, we don't have to be weird and go off in a corner somewhere, but we do have to know that like our God um, will deliver us. We ain't worried about your little fire, right? Uh, I think that to me is how I'm navigating the difference between empire and kingdom. Um, what seems the most exclusive in the sense of like, there are people who are not welcome here, right? Let's just let that hang in the air. (laughs) That's how we know what an empire is because the kingdom, everybody's welcome, baby. Everybody can come to the table. That's the kingdom. Like, so that's how you can tell who's the most exclusive. Who's the most inclusive? Where do you see the fruit of God's spirit? Where do you see the fruit of theft and, you know, killing, stealing, destroying? Where is that happening? It's not happening in God's kingdom. So just look around. You can tell the difference. Y'all know what the difference is. (laughs) Y'all know, y'all know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wow, totally. That's so good. Oh, God. Okay, so while we're here, I just want to also mention for the sake of people hearing you for the first time, um, I know we'll talk about more more, more about this in a different conversation, yeah, but yeah. Um, there's a queer component to your journey and ask yeah. if you care to just like insert that part of this into the story so people can have that in their lens as they're hearing you. Yeah, so um, I watched this series called The Wilds. I don't know if you watched it when it came out, but it came out on Amazon <clears throat> during the, during the uh, pandemic. And I was quarantined and I was watching and I have this encounter with God while I'm watching the finale. 
And I start having all of these memories pop in my head that had either been suppressed or just blocked out. And it was about how I used to feel uh, when my friends would have like crushes on boys or how I used to feel when I would have like the one friend, that one good girlfriend, right? And so I'm having all these moments pass through my mind, thinking about times I felt heartbreak and how, you know, there was extra energy when certain friends had boyfriends and stuff like that on the heartbreak. So God's like, so we gonna talk about this or nah? You know, um, and it just wasn't a conversation because I was an evangelical, it just was not an option. You cannot consider something that's not on the table, <laughs> right? right? So we totally. just never talked about it. Yeah. Uh, and so then I'm having this encounter with the Holy Spirit and God is like, we're going to talk about it. Like, if you don't look in the mirror, you won't know yourself. And you, this is about you and me now. You know, I had gotten to a place where it was like, I'm free. <laughs> um, but there was this one area that hadn't that I hadn't brought into the conversation with God. Um, and so I did. And I'm like, oh, snap, I'm gay. Um, and so then <laughs> but it wasn't a hard um, it wasn't a hard. What do you think? How would I say it? Step to make because I knew I love God. And I knew there were no questions to me about whether or not I could be queer and Christian because here I am. Like, right, right, uh, right. Here I'm you are in. doing it. Yeah. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. So um, so that wasn't a question for me. I didn't wrestle with that. What I did feel was a lot of remorse um, for ways I did harm to students when I was in uh, situations where I had to kind of um, either agree with or promote a certain perspective on the issue. Um, so I had a lot of regret about that. So I acknowledged them in the book and kind of acknowledged that um, because I can't lie about the fact that I caused harm. I did. That was what I believed. Um, it's just not anymore. <laughs> yeah. To me, you yeah. know, the awkward coincidence about what you're sharing is like, that's what happened to me in the pandemic. Only it wasn't the wilds. I was watching Miss Americana on Netflix. It was Taylor Swift documentary and I had this spiritual experience where I was like what is this and then three two other times after that that was what what caused me to come out and I had to acknowledge like there was no issue with me and God but I was like I have caused harm I have supported and been complicit with this message and narrative that has marginalized people like me and I've benefited because I stayed in the closet and it was this oh whole gosh. big mess. And I'm like, oh my god this is like very similar to my experience that was crazy. Wow I didn't know that wow Oh God, that was, um, that was a very painful summer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that like you were at Bethel cause I was, at, I was at IHOP. So it's just a lot of connections here that are like, Hmm, oh, so man. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and the amount of people I've spoken with after the fact in both those spaces who are queer and I'm like, mm -hmm. do these institutions even know like what, like mm -hmm. a chunk of their population, like what these people, who these people are, and what they're comprised of, like this is yes. crazy. It's interesting to me too, because there's so many people in the queer Christian community that did Christianity real hard. So we got lots of receipts. And I think that that causes a little bit of trepidation because you're not dealing with people who are mad at God and never knew Jesus. No, we know right. Jesus and we still know Jesus. <laughs> we're saying we're good. Right. <laughs> and totally. So what do you do with that? Like you can't, um, you know, I saw a video this morning on TikTok where the guy, the guy was talking about like, are you going to hell? Um, I'm not using fear. I'm just telling you what Romans 10, 9 says. And I'm like, bruh, you are using fear. People are just not afraid of God. 
there's too much ish happening in everyday life. You know, y'all keep trying to scare people with this like eventual uh, calamity, right? We live in a calamity. Like nobody's afraid of that. Um, so I feel like part of me is like, there is this beautiful, I feel this rumbling, this groundswell of people who know God, love God's word, and who are saying, oh, this is the next reformation. Like this is the next wave of what it means to be Christian in our day. Um, and if we look at our text and if we look at our tradition like that, then we shouldn't be mad because it's inherently progressive. We go from glory to glory, strength to strength. I mean, like the whole thing is progressive. Like I don't, I don't understand what the issue is, but um, I do feel very excited because there's people like you, there's people that have been on like your show and stuff that I love following. Cause it's like, these people know Jesus. We love the same person right. and we love the same words and they still move us. Um, we're just not doing empire. We're not doing fear and we're not doing exclusion of folks. Everybody can come, you know? And I don't know how you, at that point you, I don't know if you cuss on your show, but like at that point you either shit or get off the pot, you know? <laughs> seriously. Yeah, totally. No, seriously, for real. That's yeah. So good. Okay. Wow. So to me, I want to hear when you were talking about from Trayvon mm -hmm. to George, you said, yeah. When Trayvon happened, you were in a certain point in your journey and your yeah. process and your experience. And some of this was still kind of new. And you're like, wait, what? By the yes. time you got to George, you said you were at a different place. Can you, yeah. you spoke about the Trayvon side. Can you speak to what was going on when the George yeah. Floyd thing happened and all of that was going on? Yeah. So when George Floyd happened, I was a single mom. I was on food stamps. I was sharing a bedroom with a two-year-old in my parents' spare bedroom <laughs> because I had just left my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Um, blackness was not a thing. Like I was fully at that point, I was fully being vocal about, um, the, the tyranny of anti-blackness and the theology I had and all of those things. But it was, the difference was I watched it once. I didn't watch it the whole time. Um, I refused to watch the clips. I, I went dark. I took Harlem for a walk. Um, I prayed because at that time it was Ahmad and Brianna and then George happened, you know, so it was a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just cried. I did my own little kind of lamentation and we went for a walk and we came home. I fed her, gave her a bath, cried some more. And then I read Kelly Brown Douglas. There was, that was so different than what happened with Trayvon. Um, I knew how to care for myself. I knew how much to ingest. Because uh, I didn't need to see him be lynched to know his life mattered. Um, I had seen enough, you know, <laughs> like I'd seen enough. Yeah. Um, and so the way that I did that in choosing choosing health and life in the midst of this sort of travesty um, was like, whoa, I'm different. Like I'm, I'm feeling um, like mothering well, feeling like taking care of my body and feeling like, you know, protecting my eyes from this, but also I'm also allowed to feel pissed about whiteness and brutality and be really sad about his children and his family and the fact that he cried out for his mom. And then, you know, you know, that thing goes viral about him calling out for his mom. Now I'm thinking about Jesus and I'm thinking about Jesus having suffocated. And now I have a container for it, right? Like Jesus suffocating and crying out for his mother on public display. It was like, 
oh my gosh, there's correlation here. I, that did not happen with Trayvon. I couldn't immediately go to the cross and the lynching tree, right? I wasn't allowed to read James Cone. I wasn't allowed to le- read Black theologians because they were a slippery slope. And that's why Trayvon, oh, like the death of Trayvon took me out the game. <laughs> I didn't have a container for it. Why evangelicalism does not prepare you for actual stuff? Because it's a myth. <laughs> it's based in a myth. Um, it can't hold anything. It's powerful. I mean, myths are powerful now. They function in society, but they don't actually, they can't hold anything. They're not substantial. Uh, and that's what happened. I think the difference was like, whoa, thinking about it and thinking about what my inclination, my natural inclination was um, at the news of George Floyd. It was like, God has done a work here. Like I'm different. Like I'm living a whole different, a new type of life. Um, and that's kind of how I phrase it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So when George Floyd, when, when you were at the George Floyd end of this journey, you're talking about, were you still part of the church or what was your involvement with yeah, how <laughs> you were you doing the tequila sunrise communion mm-hmm. at that I point? Or like, communion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I took communion at home. <laughs> Me and Holland took communion on Sundays. Like we, we stayed with it. I mean, communion is a thing that stuck with me the whole time. My parents, um, my parents' church, they were going to a different church. And I actually like this church because the pastor there, um, I mean, like if ever you were going to see a church do and be church, Mount Lebanon was doing it. And so I went with them. I went to my parents' church. But in terms of me being involved in like evangelicalism or anything like that, no, my G, I just, no. (laughs) There's probably a correlation to your ability to respond to the murder of George Floyd the way you did and not being in that environment, Mm -hmm. that system anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Like you were able to humanize Mm -hmm. your experience and care for yourself and understand, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you said whiteness has no, had no container or like answer for how to respond to Trayvon, I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. so true. There, there was no, I mean, I was at Bethel when George Floyd was killed and there was no container there was no way it was a mess I mean I had to like step away from social media for seven days which I mm-hmm. post multiple times a day right I was like I don't know what's going on right now this is so bizarre what what am I feeling what am I witnessing around me what are these people saying to me it was crazy mm-hmm. you're right there was no functional way to mm-hmm. process and respond to what was happening only fear self-protection defensiveness avoidance uh mm-hmm. co-opting the narrative and turning it into something else and making it about it was crazy it was it was nuts yeah it was absolutely um, nuts. so was- i'm i'm thinking about again trying to represent my audience and where people yes. i'm assuming maybe are on the journey when you say the, the word whiteness yes can you unpack that because i know sometimes especially people who aren't engaged in conversations like this especially people who are just white they can't I, I feel like my the attitude I've seen from that part of the conversation is they can't hear you say whiteness and not feel like you're being racist toward white mm-hmm. people right would you care to speak to that and unpack that yeah um I don't think you can be racist towards white people you can be racist towards black people and black people can be racist towards black people but uh, racism is a hierarchy. It is a system that was set up to categorize people and to determine their value in society. So whiteness is not an ethnic identity. Whiteness is a technology. Okay. It's something that we use to navigate our society. Okay. And so when you understand it like that, you can kind of step away from taking it personally and begin to try and think objectively. The problem is there's so many goodies 
that come with being white or assimilating to it, that it makes it real hard to see or want to see. Mm -hmm. The great thing is that you have a lot of people of color who are telling you what it looks like, what it feels like, what it tastes like, what it smells like, and how it has affected them in Christ, (laughs) okay? So you have a whole lot of on-ramps to learn um, because people have put their stories out there. There are tons of people putting their stories out. But I think it's unfortunate to me that we're still having to have conversations about we don't hate white people. We hate whiteness and white people should hate whiteness too, because it actually robs them of developing any sort of self-love or rootedness. It was, you're born with this sort of, you're born with a, with a credit card essentially. Right. And so like it it does, there's no limit on it. You can, run it anywhere right we just don't i mean we don't everybody doesn't get that um and i think that that at this point where we are especially thinking about who your audience is they love god they love freedom right so like you've got people telling you who are people of color who have experienced the underbelly of america right telling you something is not right (laughs) we're trying to tell you what it is and it is white supremacy and the way it has been legalized, it has been spiritualized, it's been monetized, it's in our laws, it's in our economy, it's in our government. Bruh, it's leaven. <laughs> it's pervasive and invisible. Wow. But you can see it everywhere if you know it's there, right? It's yeah. that simple. Um, it's that simple to me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you. That was so clear and helpful. And, oh, God. Okay. So I want to speak on behalf of like a white person listening to you who maybe this is like new or they're just kind of stepping into wanting to look at this. But yeah, um, I know I experienced even as like, like I'm half Japanese, I'm half white, but I've been white passing my whole life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have had to, when I when the George Floyd whole debacle at Bethel was like throwing things everywhere, I had to face this whiteness you're describing in myself. And that was like a scary thing to have to admit, like, I'm not racist, right? Like all those defenses were coming up. And I'm like, what am I? I'm clearly missing. something. I had one black person on my team at that point. Mm -hmm. I had a few, um, a couple of Mexicans, mostly white people, like a Chinese person, and then a couple of like half Japanese people, right? Like, and then the rest were white, basically. Mm -hmm. So I was like, the responses, the attitude, there was such a, like a contrast. And I was like, I am missing something. I am intelligent and discerning enough to recognize something's going on here that I am not connecting to. Mm -hmm. I don't get what is that, right? So I had to go on my own journey and whatever. And the success of that journey was at the end of the seven day, and I didn't mean for it to be seven days, it was just like the seventh day of this experience, something broke. Mm -hmm. And like my humanity got touched. And I recognized like how detached and like insulated I was from what was happening, especially to my black brothers and sisters going through all this in our country. Like I didn't feel it. I didn't get it. I was so removed. It was like an option to be right. So I got to go through that process and journey. Mm -hmm. But I remember the intensity of the defensiveness and feeling a little bit almost out of control at one point, like, dude, Mike, like you're super insecure here. What is this? When's the last time you felt this out of control with your emotions and this hard and defensive against Mm -hmm. people's ideas? Like why, since when have you been so threatened by ideas? Mm -hmm. You know, like that was Mm-hmm. really intense so I imagine for people who haven't done that work like that yeah, barrier yeah. is still there right mm-hmm. um do you have any advice and I don't know if it's fair to ask you this question but like for people who are trapped in whiteness whether they're white or not because like 
I think there are people, right, who aren't white, but are very much subscribed to whiteness and are cashing in on that credit card, right? Yes. Um, any advice you would give to people, not based on their skin color, but based on their relationship with this leaven, with the empire, with whiteness, like, what would you say to them in terms of, like, if they're still initially at this process of maybe yeah. considering looking at it? Yeah, I mean, I think you, the thing is, like, I'm thinking of Jesus in the wilderness, and this is, again, popping in my head, so I think it's, Holy Spirit, so I'm gonna listen to it right quick. Um, but I think of Jesus in the wilderness, and I think of um the temptation to turn stones into bread, um, which would not be something that we ever get tempted with because we don't have the power to do that. <laughs> but it was an actual temptation because he had the actual power to do it. Um, I will give you all these things if you bow down and worship. So you have Jesus leaning in and saying, I will not bow down to empire. I will not use my power to exploit. I will use it to serve the least of these, right? And I think we have that image for a reason. And when we think about what we need to do in light of the reality of how our nation was built, I think we can feel remorse and mourning and and even regret in some things, but we should also feel a lot of hope. Um, because of the tradition we say we're a part of, because of the fact that we know that the kingdom of God knows no end, right? Um, that it is an everlasting kingdom uh, that is filled with love and light and hope and goodness and joy. All of those things are still true. Um, I think the pathway to those things needs um, to be the cross. And for white folks, that cross might be divesting of whiteness and watching what happens when you do, right? For people of color, that cross looks a little bit different, but we still bear it, right? We still have to trust in a God that we cannot see that hears us saying, deliver us. You know, so there there are ways in which we both have crosses to bear. Um, and then people like you who who have um who are mixed, right? Who have a lot of different identities. We have a lot to learn from you because you're learning how to live in tension within yourself. On one hand, you're white. So you have this history that comes with that, like in terms of America, but then beyond that, you actually have people you actually come from. (laughs) And that's a beautiful story, right? Uh, But then on the other hand, that same country put some of your ancestors in internment camps. So, you know, like there are things that you wrestle with. And I think as we do that, my, I'm I'm coming to this conclusion that like um, we need to do this because I think that's what what was meant when Paul talks about Christ in us being the hope of glory, like finding us. Jesus Christ is in there. <laughs> that's the hope of glory, right? Like you find you, you tap into it. Now everything is making sense, and you begin to shine like lights, right? Um, the way we were supposed to shine. To me, I think. White people have to do this work because otherwise you're not going to experience that unimaginable stuff that Paul is talking about. You have to divest. That I think that would be my advice on that. Now, some resources, Subculture Incorporated, <laughs> we do <laughs> consulting work, right? And we write a lot about this. And I have a, a ton of folks. I think the easiest way um, is to just look at who I'm following because I can't name them all right now. Um, but I'm at Tamisa May Speaks on Instagram and the people that I'm following um, are very eclectic. It's a very eclectic group, but I'm finding a familiar kindness um, and I'm recognizing the same spirit. Uh, and so you might feel the same way. 
I think there is some learning that you have to do and there's a ton of resources out there. Um, but at this point it's 2023, it's been, <laughs> you know, uh, it's been some years. Uh, and so you have to be patient with folks who are tired and may not have the patience and may not have the niceness that they had in 2012. Right. <laughs> oh, um, and so just be patient with that, show grace with that. And then there are people like myself and others who are willing to say like, we got you. I see myself as a person who um, is waiting for the last group <laughs> before the shit hits the fan, right? Uh, uh, and so hopefully there are enough of enough of us out here that can help help us all just get free. Whiteness is um, it's terrorism. It really it really is. Uh, it has not produced anything good in any nation on this earth. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so taking the, this idea and understanding of whiteness, looking at evangelicalism, so maybe looking at a monster we're calling white evangelicalism, would mm -hmm. you care to name a couple of cultural norms in white evangelicalism that potentially people who are part of that world don't even recognize the whiteness, the racism embedded in the culture like obviously theologically we can pull those parts but i'm wondering even just on the experiential level culture, what could people right? what could you point out that help could help people recognize like oh wait that's not you know anything yeah. in that direction you could speak to i do think that part of it is a thought policing that's a major part of it character assassination of people who don't agree really empty uh like dog whistle type things that don't really have any substance. There is usually like an unwillingness to enter into um, dialogue that could pull your sheep away. Um, mm -hmm. So some of those things I think demonstrate to us how, you know, empire, you know, capitalism, because again, like capital greed has a lot to do with race, right? And that's why I think Jesus boils it down to like, you can't worship God and mammon because mammon is really responsible for the for the production of race, right? Or the invention of race. And so can I you think speak to that? can you unpack that a little more? When you yeah. say like greed has a lot to do with race and mammon has a lot to do with the production of race, can you speak more to that? Yeah. So mammon, greed, um, greed and exploitation, to me, that feels like what Yahweh was trying to correct in the earth and has been trying to correct in the earth because those are the things that get in the way of love um, and community. And so I think to me, when I'm thinking about when Jesus says you can't serve two masters, um, you'll hate one and love the other. We see that on display. You see what happens like when white, evangelical, when white evangelicals get pushed um, to the point where society is, is exposing whiteness, a lot of them end up fully going in, QAnon, you know, pedophiles. I mean, and it feels delusional, but that's because there was no substance. And instead of falling on the rock, right? The rock falls on them. So now it's just like, what are y'all even talking about out here? Like, this is delusion. And that's what Timothy said it was gonna be, strong delusion. Because you refuse to love the truth and you believe the lie. The lie is whiteness, my G. <laughs> like, that's the lie. But anyway, so when Jesus talks about mammon, he's saying like greed and exploitation, the desire for that, discontent, uh, invulnerability, all those things lead us to set up these systems. And so race is this ideological system of hierarchy, but they didn't invent it for any other reason than how are we going to get free labor so we can build this nation up? 
<laughs> we got to produce. And then, you know, you see this kind of break in it, Mike, like there's this break that happens around emancipation. And then you have like the fact that cotton gin and production and the fact that the North is, is getting so much textile, the North is becoming rich. They all kind of just go, oops, <laughs> like we actually need these slaves. So let's, we can't bring them over here. So let's breed them. <laughs> so that's essentially what they do, right? Free labor. So you got people making money, like off of these people who are not being paid for their labor. They built a whole country on slave labor, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, that's really what's at, at play here. And most of the time people don't give up on whiteness because of the cost of it. Your money, your status, it's all, it's mammon. That, do y'all know that's what the man is talking about? He's talking about what we are experiencing right now. And we all talk about Jesus like it's, we talk about Jesus like he's a myth. He's not. Joshua the Nazarene lived and was really killed by a real state, right? <laughs> For confronting the empire in the church and in the nation. I don't understand what we think we are d- doing. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not, mean to be a, I'm not trying to be an asshole. Like, seriously, I just, I'm like, I don't understand. It can be costly and it can be painful and we can sit with that. But there being life outside of it, where, my G, show me. Look around. It ain't working. Yeah, yeah, totally. Shoot. Okay, I want to ask this last question before we land this plane. Yeah. Um, Can you speak to, is there something you'd share about how whiteness has anything to do with the queer community? affecting, influencing, impacting the queer community, especially within the evangelical world? Well, yeah, I think whiteness um, at the top of the hierarchy it created are cishet white men, preferably middle class, right? Um, And so I think the queer, queer community is affected by whiteness. I think communities of color who live at the intersections of that and queerness could probably explain it a little bit better, right? Because it's a little bit harder to, you know, there are extra path, steps to pass, right? Um, when you're a queer person of color. Um, and so I think that, yes, it does affect the queer community um, in the sense that it normalizes heterosexism, right? It normalizes a certain type of maleness or femaleness. It, um, it places male and female as though they're the only options as opposed to being like maybe even poles on a spectrum of humanity, right? And so you do that because you need to organize a society. And so I think that is kind of the main way that whiteness is functioning in the queer community. Um, And I'm still learning, um, living into my non-binary identity. I'm still learning what that means um, and what that looks like. And all I can say is that my embrace of my Blackness kind of opened the door um, to that process. So I'm still learning how whiteness shows up. I'm thinking about going back to school and getting another degree about it, right? Like, because I really care to figure it out and, and be helpful and speak to it in a way. I think that is unique to me because I live at the intersections of fatness, Blackness, queerness, you know, like um, domestic violence, like those types of things are all living on the inside of me. And somehow I'm here and I really like myself and I'm really excited about life. And so I'm hoping to grow in my understanding of how this leaven shows up 
in terms of how we think about queerness. There are people who are doing it way better and who have done a lot more work than I have. Um, I would say you're one of those people. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited to learn with you about it, figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm same, same excited. Yeah. Same these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tamise, thank you so much for being here and sharing this. And I know there's so much more to what you're saying and all that. So I want to first, like in the midst of us landing the plane, yeah. How do people get a hold of you? What are the things that they can do to plug in your book, your yeah. website, your links, any of that? Like, uh, I'll provide <laughs> links in the show notes below. But like, what? Yeah, can you just give them a tour of like where they, how they can get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm excited to be here, but I think I, I think I want to talk about subculture because um, I want you all to know that there are so many people coming behind me, and uh, so subculture, um, we try to keep black kids in school. Um, and most recently just um, partnered with uh, Campus Pride um, to specifically focus on Black trans students. Uh, but really what we do is crisis relief. And so I'd love for you to take a look at that, find out a way to help support our kids. If you want to be a mentor, if you have internships, if you want to be a guest speaker on like, you know, professional development series, would love to have you reach out. Uh, you can email us at desk at subcultureinc.org. If you want to donate, you can go to subcultureinc.org org backslash donate. Um, but I think that that's what I really want to talk about first, because the kids that um, we don't want an oil change to be a reason why a kid has to like drop out of, of college. And I watched that happen too many times when I was in campus ministry. Uh, so that's why I built the company and I'm out here, you know, I, as I'm talking about myself, I want to bring the kids with me. Um, so Subculture Inc. As far as me, I just wrote a book. You can get it on all the places. And then um, I met Tamise Name Speaks on uh, Instagram, Tamise Name, N-A-M-A-E, uh, on Twitter. And then Tamise underscore Name underscore Speaks at TikTok. And I'm kind of on Facebook, but I'm a geriatric millennial. So I'm mostly on the first three. <laughs> okay, so I, I haven't asked you about this, but Name, that's like the Japanese word for name. Did you know that? No. What is Name for you? It's my grandmother's names put together, Naomi and May. Oh. So my, um, my grandmother's name was Leah Naomi Omega Goldsboro Hasty. Um, and then my grandmother, my mom's, my maternal grandmother's name was Dorothy May. So my oh. parents put um, their names together, Name. And then my first name is, my dad's name is Thomas. And my mother's middle name is Michelle. So they put that together and came up with Tamise. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I guess I just, I literally, when I saw that in your Zoom name, I was like, Namae, what? Because that, that's the, the word in Japanese for name is Namae, and it's spelled Namae, so that's okay. I had that's no funny. clue. A surprise. <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, so I'm going to provide the links below. Everything that um, Tamise just said link-wise is going to be in the show notes. You guys can easily access and grab those there. Camille, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. And everyone else, obviously, thanks for watching, listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to dive deeper, check out MikeMayashiro.com.